Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones, uh, the director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy, and it's my pleasure to... uh, uh, to welcome back a, a friend who I have high regard for. Uh, she's one of the most uh, hardworking and industrious people. She was at one time uh, editor of Salon. She is now doing a sort of uh, frenetic uh, job of anal- analysis and reporting. I just actually checked Salon's <laughs> front page a few minutes ago, and she filed her her lead article, which is at the top of the salon page at 1047 this, this morning. Got to write every day, so, Alex. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it's, 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 this is a busy person. Um, Joan is one of the people who has taken on a tricky subject head-on. Her uh, book um, that got a great deal of attention was called What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. And she took as her basically her point of departure, the fact that she is an Irish Catholic from New York. Um, She is a rabid San Francisco Giants fan, but nevertheless, her heritage is Irish. And she was looking at the issue of what white people, which is a concept that covers an awful lot of ground, but especially middle class and working class white people, what they think, why they believe politically what they do, why they have changed, and what might be done from the perspective of the Democratic Party to win them back. Uh, it's a really interesting book, and it takes an awful lot of, uh, of, of, I wouldn't say chances so much, it just takes a lot of insight and courage to sort of look at things flatly the way Joan did in this book and try to come up with some both understanding of what was wrong and who was to blame for this, and then to try to find some solutions. Her topic today is um, not the book itself, but it is on the issue of, of politics and race. I'm not going to let her, I'm not going to steal her thunder, but I would also just want to say welcome Joan, we're very happy to have you with us. Thank you so much, Alex. I'm really happy to be here. Um, Yes, I did write a book called What's the Matter with White People? Um, And yes, I did catch a lot of hell for it. Um, The folks at Stormfront, the neo-Nazi website, were not happy. They considered it a hate crime and hate speech. Um, But I actually liked the title of the book because it had multiple meanings. Coming out, though, uh, at the height of the 2012 election, really only one meaning came through in most of the discussions of the book, and that is, what's the matter with white people when 90% of self-identified Republicans are white? Um, What does that mean for the country? And, you know, when politics gets so almost completely racialized, at least for one group, uh, and race gets thoroughly politicized, it, it, it's really, it, it's, it's trouble for a country that's founded on e pluribus unum and that, that, and that really has believed, you know, the core of American exceptionalism, in my mind, 
is really the ability to, to bring people together. Always a struggle, never easy. Many, many groups have, have struggled and suffered trying to fit in, but we eventually get around to doing it, and um, race has proven a way that, that we've, we've not quite been able to, uh, to pull together the way we used to. Um, you know, I also watched and still watch, and we all watch, as a lot of Republicans know this. They, they either they care about racial issues genuinely, or at the very least, they are afraid that their party is facing demographic extinction uh, and cannot be a white party, and so they have to figure out how to make inroads with other groups. Uh, but those those people and those forces are, are losing the battle so far, and, you know, in covering the last election, uh, you really saw, you know, Mitt Romney, who I think used to be a governor around here, um, you know, disown his whole past, choose self-deportation over immigration reform, uh, and embrace the birther-in-chief, Donald Trump, uh, rather than repudiating him. Um, many teachable moments were lost along, along the way last year. Uh, and I know that many of us looked back to the time John McCain stood up to somebody in his audience, uh, a, a woman questioning the president's uh, religion uh, and possibly his, his eligibility to be president and said, no, ma'am, we disagree, but he's a good man. He's a Christian. He's a family man. That was a, a, one of the last moments of true courage in the Republican Party. And last year, with many opportunities to do that, we didn't see it. So when I was out talking about the book last fall, that's a lot of what people wanted to talk about. But I actually had a second meaning um, in the title that was really for my fellow liberals and progressives. And it was more like, what's the matter with white people? Aren't we part of the multiracial Democratic Obama coalition? Um, and I would find myself in arguments with, with friends uh, and colleagues because I felt like there could be a tone of, of frankly, exclusion. You know, there's a Ron Brownstein has a great phrase for the Obama coalition, and he calls it the coalition of the ascendant. Um, and it's uh, African Americans, Latinos, Asians, young people, um, women. I guess women fit in there, so whites fit in there. White women fit in there. But you know, when I he I've heard some uh, some demographers and also some political consultants use that term, and it just seems to me that it's so off-putting and exclusive, like we're the coalition of the ascendant, so you're the coalition of, that's in decline. And, you know, if you're actually an active Republican, that may be true about you, but it's not true about uh, a lot of us. So that was the part of the book that I, that didn't get as much attention. And I thought, having re-elected the president, that maybe we would get to that discussion. Um, but it's been hard going. And so I wanted to talk to you all about a couple of mistakes I made um, and get feedback from smart people, uh, and, but also show how tough it is to talk about white people, um, but make the case that we kind of need to or we need to start trying. Um, I wrote a piece, I think it was in April, uh, that was headlined provocatively maybe, How to Talk About White People. Um, I got a lot of flack that I absolutely was unprepared for. You know, sometimes you do something and you know, Okay, press publish, and this is going to get me in trouble, but it's, it's, I'm, I'm ready for it. Press publish thought, this is a pretty good piece, and I think I really said what I wanted to say, and boom, Twitter went nuts. Um, I'm, on tw I'm a Twitter addict, I'm sorry. Um, 
And, you know, I made what I thought were three pretty simple, obvious recommendations. I was speaking mainly to Democrats. I wasn't speaking, and I was speaking politically, not personally. You can talk to white people, talk about white people any way you want personally. I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, but I made three basic political points. We shouldn't assume that all white people are Republicans in our discussions about them. Okay, Obama only got 40% of the white vote, but he won the white vote in really white states. That's how he won pl places like Iowa and New Hampshire, obviously. Um, and if you turn it around, well, I think something like 56% of his voters were white. A majority of his vo voters were white. Let's look at the good news. <laughs> the glass is half full. Um, it was 36 million white people voted for Barack Obama. So that, that's a start for Democrats. You know, there's, no, there's really no reason to talk about, to, to write off uh, white voters. Um, I also made the point that when we talk about white people, we shouldn't assume that all whites are wealthy. It shouldn't be a synonym for wealth. I, I was um, reading a really great New York Times Room for Debate feature on legacy admissions. Um, might come up around here. Um, <laughs> And, but I was really struck by several of the writers literally use white as a synonym for wealthy. Uh, when legacy admissions hurt white working class and rural whites as much as they hurt other people. Um, and so, you know, as always, I think we fall down around discussions of class. In some ways, race is easier. Uh, and so I made the point, you know, white family income is declining too. White poverty has doubled during the, the recession, and uh, white unemployment almost doubled during the recession. A uh, lot more white people are struggling. In fact, right now, Asian family incomes are higher. That may be because of more earners in the family. But to, to approach white people and act like you, you are the wealthy, privileged, affluent in all situations seems to me a little self-defeating. Um, and then finally, I made the point that maybe we shouldn't assume, politically speaking, uh, that all white people are racists, um, that, that maybe we, we, we've learned not to um, generalize about other groups, um, generalizing in that way about white people, again, off-putting, guilty, you know, presu presumed guilty until proven innocent. Um, there's lots of reasons for that, because there is lots of racism, but, you know, I, I felt that over the years in my work on social justice, I would often hear white used as kind of a, just used as a synonym for clueless, sort of without a, you know, it didn't need a modifier. It was like if you were talking about a white journalist or a, a white funder or a white founda foundation executive, well, you knew what you were saying. Um, and I found in my own work that I would privately sort of kindly, you know, <laughs> politely suggest maybe there's another way to say that. Um, so, okay, so I made these three points. I don't know. I didn't think they were terribly controversial. But people did, um, and people people seemed to feel like perhaps it was a lot of perhaps because I didn't say any of these things. But but I don't mean. See, I'm already sounding defensive. How do you do that? Um, you know, I think people genuinely worry that uh, it's a zero sum game. So, if political consultants, if you're if you're talking about um, just something as simple as voter registration or voter education money. If you're going to say there's a there's a potential to gain white working class votes or the votes of white college women, maybe that money is being taken away from somebody else. That I mean, that's that's real actually. Um, but I think people really the real I think sincere criticism um, that I don't really have an answer for is that I think people it was almost like too soon, you know, too soon white people. Um, 
you know, we really haven't conquered racism, and now you're trying to tell us to be nicer to white people. Like, really? Um, and I didn't totally have an answer for that. I think people also heard it as, um, as though I were blaming non-white people for the racism of white people. Like, if only you talked to us nicer, we wouldn't be so racist. Um, of course I wasn't saying that, but I, I understand. I really did come to understand after a lot of discussions um, why people would feel it, some of the ways that they did. I don't really know how I would do it any differently, but I just wanted to throw that out there because, you know, as journalists, I think we're going to be more and more challenged to describe some of these things um, and figure out how to talk accurately and honestly about them. Um, so. That piece kind of got me in trouble with progressives. Then I wrote a piece that got me in a little bit more trouble with conservatives. But it was really an interesting engagement with somebody whose name I can't pronounce because I've only seen it read. Sean Trend, Sean Trendy, Real Clear Politics. Yeah. He's, um, I think he's kind of conservative. Um, on a, we, we had a great email exchange. He said he's a four and I'm an eight on a scale of right to left. Okay, so that's, but we had a really productive exchange because he made the rather provocative uh, point that he thought actually, if not Mitt, probably not Mitt Romney, but that Republicans actually could find a way out of their current doldrums um, by doing more to appeal, appeal to white voters. Um, and that, you know, there's a whole controversy over the missing white voters in the last election and, and that, that white turnout was down. And that some people explain this away. I, I think that there's something to it. I think that, that in Rust Belt states particularly, there were white people who just didn't turn out. Um, and he, but his, his argument, his pitch was actually, you know, something that I couldn't disagree with in the sense that he felt that a more um, popu libertarian populism, whatever that might be, um, and a more, uh, you know, a more populist economic appeal from Republicans would appeal to these missing white voters. And I can't disagree with that. On the other hand, I think that such an appeal might also appeal to black voters and Latino voters if such a such an appeal could be made from the conservative side. So it would, would kind of cut into this margin with, with white voters. But it seemed like a discussion worth having. I personally, you know, since I've written about how Democrats might appeal to white working class voters, why did I assume he would be racist for trying to appeal to, to white <laughs> voters? You know, um, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. But but what I what I basically in the end, what I came to is that I just don't see at this point in our history a way to appeal to white voters per se that doesn't basically take off from the politics of, of grievance um, and the politics of, 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 of fear of uh, redistribution. And, and, you know, if you if you look at white people as being somewhat more skeptical or a lot more skeptical in certain groups uh, about high tax levels and social spending, you can say that's not racial, but the history of racializing welfare, um, the history of racializing those people getting your money, um, makes those appeals hard not to become racial on some level. Um, you know, when Mitt Romney was struggling, when his pollsters realized he did have a problem with white working class voters, they didn't go to libertarian populism. They went to Obama cut the work requirement for welfare and 
uh, you know, I remember this really chilling, icky, icky ad uh, featuring a sad-looking older white man uh, saying, you know, Obama's taking your Medicare and giving it to those people for Obamacare. Um, it, it just seemed as though, you know, the default uh, is is racial grievance uh, so many times. And so, you know, although Sean and I still correspond, I, at this point, didn't see a real way of appealing to white people that didn't play on our, our ancient histories and, uh, and troubles. Um, so, but maybe some of you guys have ideas for how that might be different. Um, you know, I, I guess I've come to the, the really reluctant conclusion because I think it's, it's uglier than it needs to be, um, and it keeps getting uglier. But, you know, you, when you saw John Boehner take office as speaker and say it wasn't his job, yeah, he, he believes the president when he says he was born here, but it's not my job to tell the rest of his caucus what to think and the American people what to think. It's really a failure uh, of leadership. Um, you know, when Mitt Romney embraces Donald Trump rather than repudiates him, that, that's, a, that's a missed opportunity. Um, I got in trouble a, a, a third time. This, this I understand much better, but I still think it's ridiculous. Um, I called Rush Limbaugh a racist troll last week um, on MSNBC because he called, uh, he, he said that the, the president's Syria campaign ought to be called Operation Shuck and Jive. Um, and the, the pearl clutchers, my friends at Politico, uh, the media writer Dylan Byers, nice guy, went right, by the time I was back from the studio, there was a big piece on Politico about how I had crossed some imaginary line but with this language and pointing out that Andrew Cuomo once used the term shuck and jive in, in reference to Obama, um, which got him in a lot of trouble, actually. It really wasn't okay when he said it either, you know? Uh, so I didn't think that, that that really let Rush off the hook, and plus there was a really easily documentable history of Rush-Limbaugh racism. I mean, you type in the words, and I, and I basically, that's what I did, and I went back and I wrote a piece in, you know, 20 minutes, because it's so easy to say, oh, oh, I'm sorry. In, my, in MSNBC, I didn't stop and say, here are the 20 other racist things he said. I should have done that, but I didn't. But that's the great thing about having a web platform too. I just went back and here it is. If you have if you have a problem with my using those terms, you might want to read this. But you know, it the experience made me realize once again, not a new realization that you know, we as journalists are really hard put to describe how bad things are right now. And I think that there's a reflexive um attempt to sort of balance things out. So, you know, you could use me as an example of somebody who's just as hateful as Rush Limbaugh because, you know, when, when you hear, well, pe folks on the left and the right, they both do it. No, they don't. Not like this. They don't. Uh, and so I think that I got caught in like, oh, we, we just, we need, we're always calling out Republicans for their outrageous things that they say we really need to call out some liberals and, you know, I'm fine with it. It really didn't hurt me. Um, but it just seemed an example of something that I've really struggled with, that I just think we have a hard time describing exactly how far to the right the Republican Party has gotten and how much of it does right now have to do with race and the race of this president. Um, and so I w really want to leave a lot of time for conversation and questions and everything and for you to tell me what I might have done wrong. 
Um, but you know, I, I, I think that we, I, I'm, I'm proud of the work that I've done, you know, talking about how to talk about white people. I think it's necessary. It may be too soon, but down the road in this country that's rapidly diversifying, that, you know, is losing any group that's the majority, I think we're all going to learn how to talk about this stuff differently, and it's going to require actually making mistakes. So, you know, you could look at me and say, she went out there, she made some mistakes, I'm going to do it right this time. Um, but, you know, I think we all need to try. So I come here in that spirit and uh, would love to open it up to questions and comments. And <clears throat> I take the liberty of asking the first couple, Absolutely. and then we'll open it up. <clears throat> would you talk a little bit more about how you cope with making a mistake online when you are out there with something you've done right and it triggers the kind of response you're talking about how do you i mean do you just sort of take it in stride do you blow it off do you engage do you try i mean how do you sort of explain to yourself this process which i know is not easy well, you know, there's two, there's kind of two, in my life, there's two types of online. There's salon and, and, you know, the web is just great for that. If you make a mistake, you can correct it. You know, you say you've corrected it. You acknowledge the mistake. Um, you can go up with something and apologize really quickly. You can say, I got it wrong. I've done all those things. Um, I think, and I know you guys have been dealing with a lot, with this, these questions a lot, um, with Peter Hamby's piece, but I think Twitter is sort of a different animal. Um, and Twitter is the place where I, when, you know, when, when I started getting like hundreds of nasty tweets about the how to talk about white people piece, I didn't reply. I just decided, it, it ain't 140 characters. There's just nothing. There's nothing I can do with this right now. I'm going to write a different piece, um, and, and grapple with some of this later. And I did in the piece that I wrote um, in, in response to Sean's piece. I did deal with the backlash. Um, so you know, I, I on Twitter I made a bad joke uh, about Mormonism. I apologize, and I apologize for it immediately. I'm watching the debate, and I, I don't. It was not even funny enough to repeat. If it was funny, I might repeat it. Um, but, you know, it was like, what? What? I'm Catholic. What? Why would I do that? And I just apologized, and it blew over. And I think that, you know, there's a great capacity for forgiveness online, actually. You know, if, you, if, if you've done something truly wrong and you apologize, it usually blows over pretty quickly. I didn't do anything wrong with the white people piece. The, the, the misinterpretations were out there. Um, but... You know, I, I find the web weirdly the web weirdly forgiving. Um, if you have a thick enough skin to know that yes, there are going to be people getting it wrong and saying, you know, saying you said something you didn't forever. There are also going to be a lot of people who say, oh, okay, yeah, that's what she meant, or oh, well, she apologized. We all make mistakes. So, and then one one other question: <clears throat> How does this play into Hillary Clinton's prospects? <laughs> oh God. Um, because the white working class supported Bill. Yes, and Hillary. I mean, the, the, this book actually has its roots in a lot of uh, debates and discussions I got into in 2008 where I really found it hard to take sometimes, especially from the white left, uh, when people asserted that the only reason white working class people were supporting Hillary Clinton was because she was white and because they were racist. 
Um, I thought that there, I personally, I was a John Edwards supporter, so there you go. There's my terrible judgment. Um, but, you know, once it came down to the two of them, I was very torn. I, I started out mainly as a Hillary defender, not a supporter, because I thought she was getting so much sexist criticism, but then also... The, the racial the, the the racial stuff was really complicated, and I you know to this day would make the case that that on domestic stuff she had a marginally more progressive platform than Obama did, uh, and so I would say that to people and get in and get in all kinds of trouble. Uh, obviously, you know when she she I I mean I use her as an example uh, in one of these pieces because when she made that comment about being supported by hard-working Americans, white Americans. Uh, even I had to say, okay, that you've gone too far. You know, Charlie Rangel called her out. Um, on the other hand, I, this is, I mean, I don't even know if I believe this, but I'm going to say it anyway. At some point, will you be able to say, I have the support of white vote? I mean, she was describing, she was describing a reality. Um, again, I'm not defending her, but... Um, you know, it was it was very tough. On the other hand, I think she does start with a sizable advantage, and that she still has not only the you know the the passion of women, uh, but you know she she will have a a bigger audience among white working class voters. So it it's an advantage for her. I think foreign policy is going to be uh, a, a a tougher spot for her. But we can that's a whole other discussion. I you know I. I People thought she was a done deal in 2007, and so having lived through that, I find it very hard to just assume it's going to go as easily for her as everybody seems to think. But um, but I think she will probably get a better hearing from white working class voters again than Obama did. Uh, <clears throat> we are opening the questioning first for students. So if you're a student and you wish to, write, to ask a question, you're you're up first. Yes, here. So I, just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was a public defender for four years. And so I actually saw a lot of white working class people actually being discriminated against more than black working class or poorer people because when they were in front of the judge, it was, I mean, this is more like a sentencing context. It was, well, you didn't kind of face, I mean, even though this wasn't said out loud, it was sort of, you didn't face a lot of what maybe some of the like, hardships that a black person may, may have faced, and so I saw the bias going the other way. So I was just wonder, wondering, like, your perspective on that, because from my experience, I feel like, although race is an issue, more of an issue is the socioeconomic problem of class. Right. That is more of an issue from my perspective. I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, obviously, they're both issues, and I, th <laughs> I think we, you know, we get in trouble when we, we go to a kind of either-or, you know, sexism is worse than racism or, you know, classism is worse. You know, they're, they're both problems. They both persist. But I do think that we're, um, we have more categories and, and, and paradoxically uh, more experience talking about race, even if it doesn't always work, than talking about class. And so, you know, I also make the point in the book that as, as much as people, academic people, and I, I count myself there too, you know, any time a white person says something done by a person of color is racist, you get the immediate, 
it can't be racist if you're not the dominant group, you know, and, but, you know, a white kid living in, say, San Francisco, you know, where you have a real diversity of both political and economic power, although white people still have the economic power, by and large, but not exclusively, a white kid really could face, uh, you know, discrimination from a teacher, and do we have to invent a new word for it? I, I mean, we can try, but let me tell you, in the classrooms, in the high schools, it's all racism now. And, you know, try, trying to hold this term to only uh, describe something that a white person does to a non-white person, we've lost that battle. So let, let, let's argue about tougher, more, more real things. Yes. I have two questions. Um, first of all, when you speak about the Coalition of the Ascendant and white uh, working people being outside of that, I don't know if you read Monica Todd's piece in the American Prospect. I did. Yeah, so about, I don't know if for those of you who haven't read it, it's about the fact that um, white working class women are dying, or women who don't graduate high school who are white, their life expectancies have decreased five years over the past 20 years, and for men in that same situation, it's decreased by three years. So um, I don't, I, I wanted to know if you actually think that that might be true, that they're not, that they are excluded from ascendancy. And my second question is, it's not, a, well, I want to say something and have you respond to it, which is that I feel like part of the problem that we have in understanding whites as a group is that they're not a group. Uh, black people in some way, excluding children of immigrants, are actually more of a cultural group than whites are, and whites are incredibly diverse and don't see themselves necessarily as white first. And I wanted to hear your thoughts about how perhaps speaking about whites in more nuanced ways, uh, noting their cultural difference, or those groups ethnically who tend to perform at a, or, you know, be, you know, we tend to carve it up by class, but actually, you know, uh, Appalachian people or Cajun people or there are other white minorities who are actually much poorer than certain others. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that most white people don't think of themselves as white, and that is partly privilege, it is, but then it, it is also that, you know, we, we see our diversity and we know, you know, when my, when my two Irish oh. Catholic uncles married Italian Catholics, it was a mixed marriage in my family, and I have a letter... <laughs> You know, it, back in the 50s and early 60s, and I have a letter from my grandfather talking about his half Dago grandchildren, who we loved. But you know, um, white pe white white ethnics have a history of struggle amongst themselves that, you know, even in this generation, maybe many many remember. Um, so that's one thing. To go back to though your first question about the Monica Potts piece, I'm not sure what you were asking me, but I did think that was an example of, you know. What's the matter with white people? Things have gotten worse for them, but sadly, many of them come up with the wrong explanation um, and, and, and blame people of other races or, or believe that things were given to other people that they didn't get. Um, that's problematic, but, but the truth is, for, for whites without a college degree, life is tougher. They're the most pessimistic group. Um, it's realistic pessimism, right? Um, they really don't think their kids are going to do better, and they're probably not. So, you know, I don't, I, I do think we have to learn to talk about these things with a little bit more compassion, at least. Other students? <clears throat> Come on, students. Ladies? Right. So I, I don't believe it's so much that it's a choice. 
Um, I come from a low socioeconomic status. I'm a woman and I'm black. But of those three things, the race is what stands out to me. Like, right. even when it's an issue that is related with all the stuff that's talking about gender inequity on campus lately, I honestly didn't really feel I had gender issues because the conversation is always about white women's gender issues. Right. Those are always the same as a black woman. So I didn't even consciously think, oh, I have, this is a gender issue. I just always remember it was about race because there's so much of an intersection there. Right. And I, I think your comment about not assuming all white people are racist is very true. But now you see like social media and all these types of things. When people choose to remain silent instead of speaking out for, for what is right, when it doesn't affect them, I think that is a lot of the problem. Because wrong is wrong, no matter whose color it is. Right. But for, for people to attempt to justify things that are wrong or find any other possible excuse for why I could not be something racial, right. I feel like that's where people can make a lot of those assumptions because if they're not racist and they don't believe us, why aren't they more? I don't, I don't want to generalize because there are some people that do, but just looking at my Facebook friends and comments and everything that's happened over the summer, I was surprised how many people just stay silent. Like, right. It didn't concern them, it wasn't their problem, so they just didn't care. Right. No, I, I see that too. And and also, you know, in in the discussion, Republicans <laughs> Republicans like to turn around on Democrats and say, well, you know, it, implicitly sort of why can't we appeal to white people because you guys appeal, you know, you're you're naked about appealing to blacks and Latinos. Well, blacks and Latinos do have some common interests. That, you know, the interest of ending racism and ending discrimination, those are legitimate interests and there are policy things that can be done to do that. Uh, and so supporting those policies, we should all support those policies, but, you know, if, as you say, it happens to be blacks and Latinos who care more and do more, well, that's, that's not racist. That's just, that's reality. And so the, appealing to black and Latino voters and looking at them as a block with, with interests that are, that are uh, legitimate, well, they are legitimate. I don't know what, white, what legitimate white interests would, would be. I, I'm open to thinking about it, but... Any other students? <clears throat> Chuck, I know you've been dying to get on here. So. <laughs> I noticed you used the phrase American exceptionalism at the beginning of your talk. Uh, Putin really struck a chord when he said exceptionalism is a dangerous thing. We're all equal under God. I think we need to temper this notion of American exceptionalism and come to a greater consciousness of the fact that this country started in a flawed way. As Condoleezza Rice said, worth the effect, uh, the original American Constitution said that I was worth three-fifths of a white person. Now, of course, that wasn't the intent of this three-fifths idea. Right, that it was wasn't. It was a matter of collateral damage. I think we ought to sober up about our origins. You know, I'm plenty sober about our origins, and coming from the left, I'm steeped in what's wrong with our country. But at a certain point, I, I think it's also fair to talk about what's right with it. And if I accept the notion of American exceptionalism, it's not that we're sort of endowed by our creator, or we're better looking, or we're smarter, but I think that the one great thing we do is strive for inclusion and strive for equal opportunity and that we have language around it and that we have a constitution that's been improved over time to do that. And so, you know, I'm I'm not somebody, I'm not jingoistic and I'm certainly not somebody who goes around crowing about American exceptionalism, but if it has one meaning that I can accept, that's it. And I and I think that. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned you at one point e pluribus unum. 
uh, I have a friend who's doing a book about the moment when we changed e pluribus unum to being one country under God. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was in the 50s, I think. Joe, you might know, something like well, that. Well, we added it in 54. Yeah. Uh, right. I remember the year that they added under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, this sort of yeah. displaced... I'm that old. <laughs> in God we trust. In God we trust. <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, it's an interesting concept, it seems to me. Uh, yes? Well, uh, I just think it's great that you uh, make this point about we're um, learning not to generalize about so many groups and we should be careful not to generalize about white people and I don't know if your work looked at the difference in the white vote between say pre-2008 2008 vote for Obama and 2012 vote for Obama but what I remember is that in 2008 the overwhelming majority well huge majority of white people voted for Obama um, they didn't it was it, he got forty three percent of the oh, white, vote, white vote, and he dropped to forty percent this time around. So okay, well then he got a very very big. But yes, it's a big piece. And I'm not sure how much Democrats usually get of the white vote versus. But he got more. Of, you are right. He got more of the white vote yes, than cl- than Clinton or, or Gore Kerry. or Dukakis or yeah. Kerry. Right. So right. that was so, that was so something. That was, and, and that was a moment. Day, that was a vote for Obama, not for McCain. Uh, they, when the Tea Party emerged after that, um, the, the idea also came up that a lot of people who joined the Tea Party had had waited out, had not voted in 2008 because they were just apathetic. So I just think that's that's very interesting, and I I think that changed in 2012 a little bit. Like the numbers might have gone down even in the black population, for, you know, for Obama as opposed to versus 2008, but. Um, you know, it's that's the second term. Second term is always a, a tried out figure as opposed to a new figure, right? So, but I just wondered, because I don't remember what you thought about this, but how you felt about, you know, this president who has taken a position on a lot of the issues of the day that, you know, including this Trayvon Martin versus Zimmerman case, and, and what your reaction was to that. <coughs> I thought it was a great speech, and, you know, the, 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 peddlers of racial grievance had a field day with it. The man can't even acknowledge that he's African American without it being a hate crime against white people. You know, it's really... Right after the event. Excuse me? When the news came out about what had happened. Especially before Obama spoke on it. Did you feel the media was... Well, you know, I I wrote about this at the time after the killing. it was a. It, Mitch McConnell condemned the killing. You know, Rick Scott appointed the. Uh, you know, wanted to have an investigation of why George Zimmerman, Zimmerman was not charged. Uh, it was bipartisan. It was that shocking. However, the minute he said, "If I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon," you know, we were off to the races, and it was and it was polarized in a, in a whole new way. Now it was trending there because, you know, because there are people who are really invested in, in a narrative of, of black criminals and uh, white victims and uh, that they really were determined to turn Trayvon Martin into a thug. It, that was star- I mean, I really looked at the dates and the coverage and the Daily Caller um, as it was happening. So it wasn't all Obama, but once Obama weighed in, it, w- it was a big racial, there was a big racial divide. and But more importantly than a racial divide, there was a real partisan divide. Um, you know, and I, it, 
think that's sad. Yes. Um, so I'm coming from the from the perspective of having lived in Mississippi for the last four years doing policy work. Wow. Level. Good um, for you. Living in where? Mississippi. Oh. Um, so the the piece that I found really interesting in your discussion is this idea that eventually the Republican Party has to take a shift in platform or ideas in order to garner a more diverse vote. And I've heard that discussion a lot on a, a national level. I've also seen the exact opposite on the state level, right? Yeah. So, so the two groups are more entrenched. They're not working across sides. And um, I just didn't know if you had any longer term perspective on how those two are going to meet in some sort of in, in the future, or if those will continue to be very diverse, you know, distinct dialogues. Yes, yes, it does. Um, you know, I think that, that one of the reasons that Republicans can continue down the path they're on is gerrymandering and the fact that they're in, you know, a lot of them are in districts. Just, let's just take Latinos. Let's leave African-American racism out of it. You know, they, they can vote against immigration reform because they don't have many Latinos in their district, and it's short-term thinking. It's short-term self-interested thinking. And I think that's going to keep us that way for a while, even as, as you know, national party leaders tear their hair out over the fact that it's going to be hard to be a national party uh, without making inroads into the Latino vote. And, and, you know, nobody even, I mean, they don't even talk about making inroads into the black vote. Um, although they do take for granted, and I think that this, I hope this isn't true, but they take for granted that without a black president on the ballot, we won't see the kind of black turnout we've seen. I really, really hope that they're wrong about that. Um, so, you know, but I, well, this is a, a digression, but, you know, I think the, the New York mayor's race is just a fascinating example of post-identity politics where, you know, the white guy won the black vote against a black candidate and won the gay vote against a gay candidate and the woman vote against a woman candidate and even the Jewish vote against a Jewish candidate, although he was... <laughs> he was a special Jewish candidate. He was a very, very special, special Jewish candidate. Um, so, you know, again, I think, I think gradually we're going to be organizing, uh, you know, around issues as much as I, or more than identity, and that was the exciting thing about the New York mayor's race to me. Yeah. Yes. Um, what, how do you define, or what is it exactly is a white person? beyond political, cultural, social construct in order to establish and preserve the privileges of wealth and power. Um, if we go back historically under the so-called one-drop rule, one drop of so-called Negro or African right. blood could make a person black or African right. and not white, so it was stronger than white. Um, you mentioned the fact that an Italian at one time, or even now, it's not considered white. The same is true with the Irish. They were one time considered black. Right. Um, and it's not exclusively to, uh, that Caucasians or even albinos are white people. Right. right. So I'd like to know your definition. And second question is, once white becomes a so-called racial minority in the United States, will we then have effective affirmative action? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, I, I don't know exactly how to define Whiteness. I mean, you know, the 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 legacy of white supremacy is is real, and I I don't think that, you know, any of us can disclaim our our whiteness um, while we're still benefiting from it. But I I I think we've got to 
think we've got to learn to talk about it um, in in different ways. Um, I, you know, how would you talk about it? Well, the fact that you mentioned talking about it is part of the solution. We tend to avoid talking about race. Right. Um, my wife is Lani Guineer, and she's been had a whole career right. trying to promote such discussions. Well, you know, I am living in New York now, but I've lived in California for almost 30 years, and, uh, you know, we passed a, a ban on affirmative action, and I think a lot of white people thought that that meant that they, their numbers would increase in the UC system, um, but they didn't. They keep going down, and the numbers of Asians increase, and I think they thought that, I think a lot of people thought that Asians were getting affirmative action, but they weren't. Um, and so I could see, you know, I, I could I could argue for affirmative action down the road for for all group for all underrepresented groups, whoever they are. Can can any, I know I can't really, but can any? Can you argue for it now? I mean, really, um, I'm I'm stuck on the e pluribus unum point, mm -hmm. which I think is the crucial American point. You know, the reason why we are exceptional, by the way, is that we were the first country in the history of the world to say that the things that we had in common intellectually were more important than the things that divided us, even given the flaws. And by the way, long lines around the, the, the American embassy in Moscow to get visas to come here. I don't see any lines like that at the Russian embassy in, uh, in New York or Washington. But the point I've, I've written, I've probably written more about this single topic than anything I, than any other topic in my life especially when I was covering New York politics in the 80s. And it seems to me that these calls for real conversations about race are never calls for real conversations about race. They're calls for conversations about racial grievances. And I think that, and let me ask you this, um, how can the Democratic Party be in favor of e pluribus unum when it, had, when it makes more racial distinctions than the Republican Party does. How long do we need to have a black caucus, especially given the fact that so many of its members are so corrupt? Um, when do we start having an urban caucus? And second of all, as long as the government isn't well managed, white people and, and middle class Latinos and middle-class black people are going to have real gripes with it. For right. example, we know that early education works. We also know that Head Start does not work. It has been, it's been proven conclusively by the people who run the Head Start program. Well, when, exactly. that's, that, that's not know, exactly. How can the Democrat, doesn't the Democratic Party have to take programs like Head Start and make them work you know, and really manage them better? Yes, they do. I mean, I, I, I would take issue with your characterization of that study, and a lot of people smarter than me have taken issue with it. It, it had a crappy control groups so that they were measuring against kids who were actually getting higher quality preschool than Head Start. There's a lot of problems with that study. but but. But point well taken, Head Start hasn't done everything that... It hasn't done it, anything. That was, that was a 40-year longitudinal study that was the most comprehensive other study. Other studies have... And it was done by HHS itself. Other studies have found, have found effects. But the point is, <clears throat> yes, you know, you've got minimum wage teacher's aides in these classrooms, you know. So people find, say that it's broken, but don't 
give them the money to fix it. And I know it's a it's a vicious it's, it's a vicious. It's broken because it's run by anti-poverty programs we, we in forty percent of the cases, <coughs> and they are corrupt hacks. People in Obama's White House will even tell you that they that that it's a jobs program, not an education program. I you, I would encourage Sorry. you both to have this conversation. <laughs> I'll do it later. I'm I'm done, but I just. Uh, uh, you had something. Here. Yeah, going back to uh, the districting and the de Blasio race, um, you know, your your title is a takeoff on what's the matter with Kansas, yeah. right? And that was a very provocative book about the politics of Kansas, where I grew up. Um, how much, it seems to me that the, the right wing, at least one cycle ago, but probably a couple election cycles, kind of gave up on national politics and it's fighting its battles state by state. What's going on in the state houses, what's going on in, in school boards, what's going on in, um, I mean, there's this whole, do you know about Agenda 21? Of course. Yeah, they're, they're, for people who don't know Agenda 21, it's a UN resolution about sustainability. And if you go to a city council meeting, like my mom did in Durango, Colorado, and they're trying to come up with a five-year development plan for little Durango, um, if you say the word sustainability, the Tea Party people leap out of their chairs right. and say that it's a you know conspiracy to take your land away. There's stuff going. There's so much stuff going on at the state and local level, where in fact you know they're stealing a march on progressive forces. And yet, I watch you all on MSNBC every day, and it's never mentioned. No one ever talks about anything below this kind of national horse I would level. I would, dis I would say in general that's true. I would disagree in, in that I think we paid a lot of attention to red state restrictions on abortion. That would be one area yeah. where, I, where I think there, there has been a lot of, of attention. But, you know, I would say Democrats and progressives in general have been terrible. There's always been a fixation on, like, presidential politics and finding the right, you know, sacrificial lefty to run against whoever the sellout Democrat is, um, as opposed to organizing, uh, you know, doing doing the dull work of, of organizing around city councils and state houses. So I, I, I definitely think that that's a problem. But is there something, I mean, I think it's also media failing. I mean, it's hard to, um, it's hard to kind of nationalize or tell these local stories well, but but they're so important. I mean, and and this is not just MSN or, or the networks. I right. think this is the um, the press. I mean, the print press as well is just ignoring all of this. Yeah. Well, I kind of draw off uh, that, and I guess my question would be: To what extent media and journalism are culpable for the deficiency of the dialogue we're having, or the dialogue that we're uh, that we're not having? Uh, even the mainstream media seems more comfortable in enabling. Uh, politics of racial grievance uh, much more easily and more frequently than talking about the politics of socioeconomic grievance as you were uh, talking about here. We don't have reporters who cover the, the labor movement, the workers. We don't right. really write all of this uh, stuff up. And I'm, I'm a believer in the politics of grievance. We've never had a form in this country that doesn't come from grievances. What kind of grievances right. are you talking about right. uh, that's at the center of it? Surely I agree with you that uh, the Republican Party, Republican Party has moved pretty far to the right. So is the Democratic Party. So is corporate media, mainstream right. media, uh, which is largely responsible, I think, in my own mind, for the lack of discourse about this and you know, focusing on where it needs to be focused. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there have been have been a bunch of studies that you know, as as journalists, uh, especially well, especially television journalists, but um, you know, as there's this elite group of journalists who increasingly identify with the if they're not in the top one percent, but you know, they they identify upward. They don't come from working class backgrounds. They don't. They're, they're not maybe a, only a generation removed from from a working class background like I am, um, and they don't care and they don't know anybody who these are problems for and and I think that I definitely think that's part of it. I also think that you know Fox News is a is a real has has really changed our culture. Um you know I, I m- most of my relatives watch Fox and you know it's sort of like they are now they are now given their own parallel universe and their own parallel set of facts that are just true, you know. Uh and that believe believe different things uh, uh, that I that are not true according to me. But you know, they feel armed with with a way to understand the world and fight back. And you're you know you're talking about global warm or climate change and whatever it is, um, or that you know Obama took money from Medicare and gave it to Obamacare and you know which he sort of did actually, but that's it's a but Paul Ryan took it and gave it to Rich Paul Ryan took the same money and spent it for tax cuts, so for the wealthy, so you know. Um you know the irony is that the program that they took that money from is growing dramatically Medicare Advantage. Right. Yes. Thank you. Um, you mentioned the inevitable backlash that you received on Twitter for one of your pieces and that led you to decide not to engage, but also mentioned the forgiveness of the web. So I'm wondering, do you think that the pace and simplicity and sometimes anonymity of, of social media fuels this kind of polarization on rhetoric and content, or how would you judge its effectiveness in giving more people a voice? They're both the, both those things are true. You know, it gives, it gives more people a voice, um, w- which means more people can abuse their voice and be nasty, anonymous trolls, um, and say horrible things. So you know, I don't I don't really know. It it, ta- it depends on which day you talk to me, um, in terms of you know w- whether the benefits out- outweigh the costs. Mostly, I think that they do. But um, you know, I think you can't. It's one thing to apologize for something that you got wrong or that you've rethought. Um, arguing nuance with with someone who's just really determined to to you know build an audience ha- have an have an audience in their dialogue with you and then bring in 10 other people suddenly you're you're really being bullied um and so i've learned to pick the times that i will engage and also the people with whom I, i'll engage and sometimes you can have these really pro- really provocative and productive discussions and other times you just turn off the computer and go to bed and that's the right thing to do Yes. Simple question. That is, who gets it in the Congress? Your thesis and what you're talking about. Who, who represents sort of the best thinking and the best uh, policies in this area? That's a really good question. Um, you know who gets Donna Edwards gets it. I heard Donna Edwards make a speech and talk about her white constituents in 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 very. She, she's African American for those who don't know. Uh, in you know much the much the language that, that I that I've used. I think that there is uh, you know during during the Obama campaign. I used to yell at the television because 
you know, reporters would say to surrogates, well, your your guy, the president has a problem with white people. And only one time, and it was Mayor Kasim Reed of Atlanta, only one time did I ever hear anybody say, well, actually, he has a problem with some subgroups of white people and not with others. Um, so, you know, I, I, one thing, we're, we're almost done, but one thing that I do think is a problem is something you referred to. I think that the Democratic Party became very corporate and pro-Wall Street, and some of the distinctions between the two parties in terms of, of uh, you know, in terms of economic policy were blurred uh, for a while and still are blurred. So the, you know, the emergence of an Elizabeth Warren or a Sherrod Brown who's really talking about uh, an agenda for working and middle-class people and highlighting these, these class issues and disadvantage for all races, um, you know, I, I think that's a positive development because I think, again, you know, when white working class people d said the Democratic Party abandoned me, they would point to African Americans as who they abandoned them for, but they should have pointed, to, at least some of them, t to Wall Street. Um, and they, they, got the, they got the problem right, but the cause wrong, so. Yes. <laughs> you. <laughs> Um, if I were to think of what the problem with white people is that is that uh, there's a, I mean, we, uh, I think Democrats have sat around a long time wondering why they didn't get uh, the uh, less uh, advantaged white vote and why white people who are middle class or working class don't vote for the party that uh, favors uh, some redistribution and, right. uh, and a fair taxation system. And so I think that's a that's a good question, and I, I think uh, it's one that you know, we we deserve to, to think about. Uh, but that group has been um, suffering an economic decline, wage stagnation, uh, moving from better paying jobs to worse paying jobs. They're not making the same amount of money, and for them, uh, I think this is a, a very simple explanation. They did not have a big education. Right. And those jobs are gone. And the jobs are not coming back. They're going to get jobs in retail, they're going to get jobs in restaurants, and they're going to make minimum wage, and they're unhappy about that. And so uh, they look at the most obvious explanation for this, and they say, well, gee, now I'm competing against people I didn't have to compete against before, so that must be the problem, as you point out. It's the simple answer, but and they're not giving it away. And when and what I find interesting is that when you tell them that they can benefit from food stamps and they can benefit from various programs, uh, or that they should be asking why the rich don't pay their fair share, they won't go there. Right. And, and I, I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, we've always had an issue in this country as to why you shouldn't tax the rich. Right? And because most Americans think one day I'm going to win the lottery and I'm going to be rich. And I want to pass on those millions of dollars to my child. Why should I be in favor of some kind of uh, limit on the amount that I can pass on, even though they don't ever come near that limit? Well, I, you know, on the other hand, I think polls show a lot of support, even among white people, for raising taxes on certain types of rich people, and that it's been a real concerted effort by both parties. You know, Chuck Schumer uh, had a lot to do with why Mitt Romney paid such low tax rates. Uh, you know, so even when they see the problem correctly, they don't necessarily get get what they want. But, um, but yeah, I think... Um, Could I ask you how many... How many 
four white people you've actually talked to about these sort of things? I do all the time. And you all know each I, other. Some of my best friends are from the white <laughs> <laughs> Because I do all the time, too. And out in America, and, and by the way, the group that's usually not represented at a table like this, certainly not at the editorial board at Time Magazine, are evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And if you talk to people, as I have, throughout Appalachia, and you ask them about food stamps, they say, I get my food through the church's food bank, which, by the way, are very supple and all over the place. And they say, I get my drug counseling because methamphetamine has become a plague among white working class Americans. They say, I get my drug counseling through the church. Um, they get checks from the government. They get counseling and love and community from the church, and they're more likely to take the church's guidance on political issues for that reason. How do you respond to that? I think it's I think it's largely true. I mean, you know, I I, I think that I don't know how how progressives. Uh, y there's been lots of efforts to organize through churches and to to you know counter the the right word leaning of church people on uh, they never get very far but you know there's still also a strong you know I'm very excited about our new pope um there's still a strong um strain of catholic social teaching uh in the church and so you know uh, I but I think too often you know I also I mean you you raised something that I was thinking you know I think that this notion what's the matter with Kansas or what's the matter with white people or poor white people implies that their economic interests, what we define as their economic interests, should be paramount to them. And I think that's really condescending, and it's often not true. And I think the great genius of republicanism is to say to poor people that you have, you're entitled to have the same exact opinion as Mitt Romney, you know. This, that, this isn't it a great country? Uh, and when Democrats assume that they should be driven by, you know, getting better, getting more Social Security or, you know, a lower tax rate for them, a higher tax rate for rich people, they're missing a lot of what motivates um, humans. I, I want I to give Marion a chance to respond if you want to, if you have something more you want to add. Well, I think that, um, to quote Marx, religion is the opiate of the people. Um, I, I, I think that for many the, years... The sign of the suffering masses, he also said. <laughs> Oh, but I, Television not, is the opiate of the people in the 21st century. That's true. Religion true. is the source of community. Uh, well, I think for it's people. video games, right. actually, but it, 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 that's moving on from television. But I do think that there is an issue, which is that the Republican Party has embraced uh, religion and religiosity. Uh, and so for some people, whether there's prayer in schools is more important to them than what happens on Social Security. Right. And, and this has been a frustration to Democratic Party organizers because they feel they, uh, they're up against something, you know, God's pretty big, and, you know, that's, that's a tough, tough one uh, if that's where you're, you're at. And so the only thing, and it's always been true, uh, because in most cases people believe that democracy uh, is one where the majority rules, and we all know that there are more poor people than rich people, so how do you do it? How is it that you get Republicans elected? And the answer is you've got to appeal to them on another basis other than an economic basis. And we haven't found um, 
Thing. Oh, I think it's a little more complicated than that. Joe, no, we're, 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 we're out of time. She's a member of the family, so you should feel free. Joe, we've been very glad to have you back. It's great to see you. Thank, Thank you. you.